Hear now the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 15, verses 10 through 20. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone, they are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. As we study the passage this morning, we're seeing the conflict between the religious leaders and Jesus take a step forward. This is a part of the Gospel of Matthew where that conflict is escalating, and it's going to escalate all the way until the dramatic climax of the Gospel of Matthew when Jesus Christ is condemned and crucified. But as we see this conflict sort of in progress, I want to think about what we are seeing in this story with a wider scope of vision. I want to think about the conflict between the religious leaders of Israel here in light of the conflict we see in the Old Testament, where the religious leaders and the whole people of Israel were constantly at odds, constantly at enmity with the Lord. Here's the question I want to ask as we look at this particular passage. When we look at the Old Testament, when the people of Israel were constantly straying from the Lord, why was it that Old Testament Israel was so regularly ensnared in idolatrous pagan worship? Why were the Israelites of the Old Testament so regularly ensnared in idolatrous pagan worship? Well, if, if you know a lot about the Old Testament. You don't have to read very far into the histories or into the, the prophets who are condemning the people of Israel for wandering off into idolatry. And if you don't know much about that story, I would strongly encourage you to take the Sunday school class that Pastor Andrew is going to teach through the course of this year, uh, where you're going to learn the whole story of the Bible. But it's all over the Old Testament. Why was that? Well, understand that the main promise of pagan worship was the promise that the worshiper could have a direct participation in renewing and restoring creation to its original order, as one author puts it, as it was on that first day. So, if you know about the story of Baal worship in the Old Testament, Baal was the god of life and fertility in the Canaanite idolatry. Baal was the god who was in control of the storms and the rain clouds. He was the one that you would need to appease if you wanted rain to give you crops and from crops to then have food. Well, when Baal worshipers would gather, they would sometimes celebrate regularly the, a festival to commemorate when Baal 
defeated the Canaanite god Moat, the god of death. And as Baal defeated Moat, they recognized that that was how the earth was originally created. But the festivals of these pagan worshipers wasn't just to remember something that happened at creation. Every time this festival happened, it was as if that battle was happening all over again. And the promise of pagan worship was that if these worshipers could offer the right rituals to the right gods at the right time in the right way, then these worshipers could take direct control for the solutions to their problems. You see, it wasn't just that something was happening in the past. They believed this was happening again, and their worship played a direct role in helping Baal to defeat Moat once again, so that again this year there could be rain and crops and food. So why were they so ensnared by this? Well, it offered them a direct solution to their problems. Is there a drought? Is there famine? Are you suffering from other problems? Maybe you haven't offered the right worship to the right God in the right way, and if you could just get your ducks in a row, then you would get what you wanted. But understand, there was a direct connection between their rituals and what they got. No rituals, no rain. That was why they were so attracted to this. It was a direct solution to their problems. Well, again, if you know the history of the Old Testament, eventually God judges the people of Israel for being constantly drawn aside to uh, the idolatrous worship, not only of the gods of the Canaanites, Baal and Asherah and everyone else, but also the gods of the Assyrians and the Babylonians and everyone they would counter along the way. Eventually, God sends his people off into exile. And when the people of Judah return from exile after the Babylonian uh, captivity, they never again struggle formally with pagan idolatry. But what happens is, there is nevertheless a paganizing influence. And what we are seeing in this story, and this is where all of this is leading, this is why we're thinking about this in a wider context, the people of the religious leaders of, of, of Israel in the day of Jesus they certainly wanted to restrict their worship to the true God, the living God, Yahweh. But there was very much a sense that if they could just keep the ceremonies that God had given them and that had developed through the traditions of the elders, if they could just keep the right ceremonies in the right way at the right time, that in some sense that would move heavenly realities, just according to the way the pagans thought about things, that would secure and maintain God's favor for them. And again, for them, there was a very direct connection between what they did and what they got. No ceremonies, no salvation. Which again leads so much to the conflict of these religious leaders with Jesus. They don't think that he's towing the line as to the ceremonies. In the previous passage, it was the washing of the hands before eating a food. Now we're talking about food itself that Jesus is talking about. Because what Jesus is doing is exposing that the real problem is not about keeping the right ceremonies. The real problem goes much deeper all the way into the seat of the heart in the soul. And what Jesus is going to say is that we are not saved by ceremonies. Rather, we are saved by someone who can finally deal with the sin that lurks inside of us. Our big idea then as we study this particular passage is that sin defiles the soul not ceremony. Sin defiles the soul, not ceremony. And what we are going to see implicitly from this 
is that not only the problem that Jesus is identifying, but that he is also implicitly identifying the solution. Salvation through forgiveness and cleansing of sins. Well, three parts to our passage today. Number one, first of all, we have a parable of the kingdom. A parable of the kingdom. And secondly, plants and pits. Plants and pits. And then third, the problem of sin. The problem of sin. So first of all, the parable of the kingdom in verses 10 through 11. Now, we need to remember that the passage we're looking at this morning is connected to the passage that came in the previous section that we looked at last week in verses 1 through 9. There again, the the Pharisees had come up from southern Judea, had come up into northern Galilee. They'd come all this way to confront Jesus that his disciples were not keeping the ceremonies. And remember, no ceremonies, no salvation. This is a big problem. And so they asked Jesus about the hand washing that the disciples are neglecting. And Jesus, last week we saw, confronted their legalism. He said, these aren't commands that are actually written in the word of God. This is legalism. He points to the fruit of legalism as these counterfeit commandments that seem like they might be a part of the law of God, but are not given to us in God's law And we looked at the anatomy of the whole system of legalism, that that fruit of these counterfeit commandments arises, grows off of the the woven and tangled branches of a life that is lived looking for loopholes from God's law, that all of that rests on a trunk from which everything depends, of a relaxed view of God's righteousness. God requires that we be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect, but legalism relaxes that do something that is manageable for us to keep. But all of that root structure that flows up into it, Jesus said, was a heart that is far from God. Back in verse 8, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Well, after Jesus has confronted the legalism of the Pharisees and the scribes, we read in verse 10 that he called the people. Literally, this is the word crowd. I'm not sure why the ESV has people here, because it's important to always see what Jesus is doing with the crowds in the Gospels. Sometimes he interacts a lot with them. Sometimes he ignores them. Sometimes he sort of stays apart from them. Here, Jesus is actually calling the crowds to him. It's very rare that he does this. The last time he did this was back in Matthew chapter 13. And the reason that's important is because what Jesus says to the crowd, hear and understand. Matthew 13, if you remember, was a chapter where Jesus gave seven parables of the kingdom, where he told several stories to explain the nature of the spiritual kingdom of heaven. And there he said the nature of the kingdom of heaven is something uh, that Jesus says the people, the crowds, will see but not see, that they will hear but not hear, and neither will they understand. Well, now Jesus is going to the crowd again and saying, hear and understand. told you about the kingdom before. But you didn't get it. You didn't see it. You didn't hear it. You didn't understand it. What Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 13, which in many ways he's picking up in this passage again, is the idea that the kingdom of heaven is not outward. It is not external. It is not visible. The kingdom of heaven is inward. It is internal. And it is spiritual. And so Jesus says, hear and understand. You can't look at something to see this. Hear it reflect on what I'm saying and understand what I'm teaching you about these spiritual realities. And so in verse 11, Jesus explains this, and later he's going to call this a parable. 
It's a teaching that maybe isn't in story form, but it's veiled, it's hidden. There's a mysterious way about it. So in the verse 11, he says, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. But clearly Jesus, when he talks about what goes into the mouth, is talking about eating. He's talking about food. In the Old Testament law, there were stark differences that were drawn, lines, divisions, boundaries that God had drawn between the foods that were clean and the foods that were unclean. To eat unclean food defiled the old covenant worshiper. But not because there was something magical about that food. It was rather because God had forbidden it. God had said, don't eat of it. So to eat of that food was to disobey what the Lord had commanded about that food. Well, the Pharisees took this teaching about the divisions between clean and unclean food and other laws about washings and ceremonial cleansings in, 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 in areas that weren't related to eating and sort of put all of this together and says, it's not only the foods that you eat, it is also whether you eat these foods in a clean or an unclean way. Namely, do you wash your hands before dinner? Now, children, you should do this because of the germs. Understand, though, that it has no spiritual significance except if your mom tells you to do it, then not to wash your hands would be disobedience. So we still have to wash our hands, but it's not because there's something spiritual or magical about cleansing spiritual defilements from our hands before we eat. Jesus is saying that isn't really the problem. The problem isn't what's on our hands or what is in our food. The problem is what is in our hearts. And so Jesus talks about what comes out of the mouth. Now, what Jesus talked about in Matthew 12 explains to us exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about the words that come out of our mouth. Because what Jesus said in Matthew 12, verses 33 through 34, is that there is a tight, integral connection between what is happening in our hearts and the words that spill out of our mouths. Now, last week, we talked about the legalism of the Pharisees as a tree well, again, this image is all over the Gospel of Matthew, and one of those places is Matthew 12, verses 33 through 34, where Jesus says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. There's a close connection, Jesus is saying, between the heart and the words. And what Jesus said in Matthew 13, which again, this is referring back to with these parables of the kingdom, is that it is the allegiance of your heart that determines your kingdom loyalty, whether the kingdom of this world or whether to the heavenly kingdom that Jesus is ushering in. Now, what Jesus is making, the basic point that he's saying here is that your heart is integrally involved in whether or not you are clean or defiled. We might ask, why did the Pharisees struggle so much to understand this? It doesn't seem like that difficult of a concept to grasp. Even among the pagan religions, there was a belief that the loyalty of your heart was important. If you, if you read some of the ancient pagan kings, they would talk about their great loyalties to this or that God who had promoted their agenda, who had given them victory on the battlefield, who had expanded their empires. Why then couldn't the Pharisees understand the importance of the heart in relating to the true and living God? Well, this gets to that paganizing influence that I want to argue is everywhere in this passage. 
Because there is a great difference between worshiping a power and worshiping a person. You see, for the pagans, uh, for example, take Baal worshipers. When Baal worshipers were worshiping Baal, they believed that Baal was the god of rain, the god of the storm. That didn't mean that he was a god who was sort of assigned dominion over the storms that could just sort of move them from the heavens to where he wanted them to go. They believed that when they saw the storms coming, they were seeing a manifestation of Baal himself. That was the storm. Baal was in the clouds coming to them. And so to this day, we recognize that there's great power in the storms. Whenever a hurricane comes up, if, if people in Florida could appease those storms, certainly they would do so, do so in some way. They would try to. But that kind of worship where you are worshiping the God who is the God of the storms, who's in the storms, is transactional. It just gives something in order to get something. It tries to take direct control over the problems. I need rain for my crops to eat something at harvest time. But the true God of the Bible is not a power. He's not the God in the storm. We are not appeasing a power when we worship the true God. We are approaching a person. And in interactions with a person, everything changes and the heart is of the utmost importance. You ever had someone who does a lot for you? You ever have someone who serves you in a number of ways? Maybe it's an employee in a company that you interact with, a restaurant or something like that. And somewhere along the way, you find out that this person actually doesn't like you very much. Doesn't that change the entire way that you think about that person? If you realize that they don't actually like you, they're just trained to be nice to you, of course that changes your interaction with them. The heart matters a great deal in relating person to person. When we worship the Lord, we are not appeasing a divine power. We are approaching a divine person. The heart is everything Jesus says. The cleansing of your hands has nothing to do with it. What Jesus is driving home here is the kingdom of heaven is absolutely spiritual. It's worked out not in the ceremonies. Salvation isn't through ceremonies. It's worked out in the heart and in the soul. In this wrestling with the sin that is already there, the sin that manifests itself by our words. Well, Jesus, sort of having laid the basic debate in front of us, now he goes on to confront and to sort of dismiss the problems and the contradictions that the Pharisees have. He uses two basic images, and we're going to come to the second point here plants and pits. These are the two images that Jesus uses. In verse 12, we read, the disciples came and said to Jesus, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? They're apparently quite concerned about the thinking of the Pharisees. Understand, for people to come from Jerusalem, to come all this way, that was a big deal. And these religious leaders were clearly not impressed with Jesus. What are we going to do? Well, Jesus frankly doesn't care. In verse 13, he goes on and he says, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. You need to worry not about the opinion of Jerusalem. You need to worry about the opinion of my Father in heaven. My Father has not planted them. And if my heavenly Father has not planted them on the last day, they will be uprooted. And then in verse 14, he goes on and gives a different image, a different 
way of talking about this that gets at the same reality. He says, let them alone, they are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. But what are these ideas getting at? Well, again, in Matthew, we've talked about this. Trees or plants refer to people who then produce the fruits of the doctrines, the words that they teach and speak, as well as their actions. And again, we thought about the Pharisees and their teaching last week, their legalism, their hypocrisy, as an entire structure, an entire system that stems from a root structure of hard hearts flowing up into a trunk of relaxed righteousness, moving out into looking for a thousand loopholes that eventually bears fruit of counterfeit commandments. Well, in verse 14, we have these blind guides. Remember in Matthew 13, this is one of those connections back to that kingdom parable chapter. Jesus warned that the crowns would have eyes that do not see and ears that do not hear, neither do they understand. Well, these Pharisees are in that boat. They have eyes but do not see. They are blind. It's so interesting. Jesus acknowledges that they are leaders, but he denies their capacity to lead rightly. Certainly they are leading people, but these are the blind leading they know not where, other people who are blind and cannot see that these Pharisees are leading both of them into judgment. To fall into a pit is the same thing then as to be rooted up. It means that because of the life and the conduct and the doctrine, these lives are moving toward eternal judgment. For the Pharisees, the big issue are these ceremonies. The keeping of the ceremonies, the tradition of the elders. Salvation will come through ceremony. But for Jesus, it is sin that defiles the soul. So that salvation is going to require something much greater, the forgiveness and the cleansing of sin. You know, I think in our own lives, even if you're not an obsessive hand washer, at least not for spiritual purposes, I think even if that's not the case for you, it's always so tempting to reduce our relationship with God to mechanical actions that we can see. Uh, right now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, I'm, I'm okay. I'm here, aren't I? I'm at this worship service. Maybe you think about how much of the Bible. I read a chapter of the Bible every day. I spend 15 minutes in prayer every day. I volunteered. Maybe I'm a greeter. I'm on the music team. Maybe I'm teaching in some way. Look at these actions that can be weighed, measured, or counted. Don't you see what I'm doing? You see my commitment to the Lord in those ways. The Bible teaches us, though, from beginning to end, that if we are only trying to evaluate our own lives and what's happening around us according to what we can see externally, we are therefore blind to the greatest and most important realities of spiritual life. It's not that you shouldn't do these things. I'm glad you're here today. Please do read the Bible daily. Please do spend time in prayer. We would love you to volunteer in the church. If you'd like to know opportunities, we would love to talk with you more about those things. But don't reduce your relationship with God to those things. That isn't the basis on which you were saved. You cannot perform those ceremonies to save yourself. As much as it might feel good, I can see real tangible evidence Jesus says that's not enough. Because Jesus' kingdom is real in a different way than we can see because it is spiritual. The Pharisees teach a different kind of a doctrine. 
I would argue, a paganized kind of a doctrine that is false and blind to reality. It sees these mechanical actions sticking to the ceremonies as the main thing. Well, what practical difference would these two doctrines make? The doctrine of the scribes and Pharisees and the doctrine of Jesus? Well, in this last section, in the third section, Jesus is going to home in on the real problem, the sin that defiles the soul. Ceremonies don't defile the soul. Sin defiles the soul. So the third problem, or the third section is the problem of sin in verses 15 through 20. Now, once again, I love Peter. He asks the question that all of us are maybe too afraid to ask, and he just boldly says it for us. Thank you again, Peter. Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. We don't get it, Jesus. Now, Jesus is astonished by this. He says in verse 16, he says, are you still without understanding? Remember, that understanding is an issue. Seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Do you not understand? You're just like the crowds, Jesus warned. Verse 17, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? What you put into your body, what you eat, this has no lasting residence in your soul. It goes in one way and out the other without getting too graphic. Jesus just says it. The problem is not what we put in our bodies. The problem is not what we eat. The problem is what is already there in the, in the seat of the soul in the heart. And he says in verse 18, but what comes out of the mouth, explaining that earlier parable, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. And then in verse 19, he largely works his way through the Ten Commandments. He says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts. It's not entirely clear what he's, that seems like a very catch-all term, but then he goes to the Sixth Commandment, murder. The Seventh Commandment, adultery, sexual immorality. The Eighth Commandment, theft. The Ninth Commandment, false witness and slander. And that slander could also include blasphemy, so it could get at the earlier commandments, the First or the Second Commandment third commandment. These, Jesus says, are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Again, the problem here, the, con the contrast that Jesus is making here is of what we can see. I can look at you. I can watch whether you have washed your hands. Uh, fellowship meal next week, I can wash to see whether you take a squirt of the sanitizer before you go through the line. I can see that. I won't judge. But I can see that. But what I can't see is what's in your heart. You can't see what's in my heart. Jesus says, that's what we need to see, however. You know, a few months ago, our family got a dog. We named her Grace. She's been a great blessing to the family. We love her. But new pets always require adjustments. For example, uh, she sleeps in our room, and we got her a very comfy bed that's off in the corner. But that silly dog decides very often in the middle of the night that she no longer wants to enjoy the luxurious comfort that we paid for for her to have in this bed, and she would rather prefer to sprawl out on the floor, particularly in the areas where we walk. So when I wake up in the morning and it is dark and I am walking, this silly dog is just sprawled out there, and I've tripped on her multiple times. It's to the point that when I go through this dark room, I can't just walk through it. I used to know my path through the room. I no longer do. Now I have to get out my phone and sort of shine it on the floor every time I walk through the room because of this otherwise wonderful dog. 
What Jesus is doing here is he's acknowledging this is something that we cannot see. Do you not see, Jesus says? He says he understands and recognizes that our eyes are blind to these spiritual realities, but Jesus is giving us a light to shine out the problems that are deep into our soul, to help us to see what we cannot otherwise see. See the real problems, not what we can see externally, but what lurks in the soul invisibly through the sin that we have inherited from the sin of our first parents. Well, how then do we apply this passage? Our application this morning is this. Seek your justification and your sanctification in Christ. These Pharisees sought to justify themselves. That is, they sought to judge themselves as righteous according to law. They believed that they could judge themselves righteous as they held their lives up according to the standard of the law. Now, to attempt to justify yourself according to this legal principle is really what legalism is all about. Now, of course, we can't do that. If the law actually requires an infinitely high as heaven righteousness, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, then none of us can measure up to this. And so that's where legalism builds a trunk of a relaxed righteousness. Whoever relaxes the least of these commands, Jesus says, and teaches others to do the same will be counted the least in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, but unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, then you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees believed they could relax this law to a sanitized, boiled-down version of the law that was enough that they could get themselves over that standard they believed. They haven't met this righteous standard, but they think that they have. And because they think they are righteous, they don't, need to, they don't think they need to be further sanctified. They believe they are already good enough. And because there was no immediate concern then, what they do is they shift their focus from what is real and true and lasting and spiritual to what is surface level, what is false, what is temporary, what is ceremonial, things they can see, things they can control directly. Salvation comes through ceremony. No ceremony, no salvation. What Jesus is showing here is that you cannot be justified according to your righteousness. He wants all us to see this. What he is doing is pointing not just to whether you have broken this commandment or that commandment. What he is pointing in your soul, what you know, is that in you there is a cauldron of sin that you are helpless. No surgery can get at it by any doctor in this world. The sin that boils over when you lose your temper. The sin that rises in a rush of lust. The sin that causes an ache of covetousness as you see something you want. The sin that leads you to warp the truth in your mind or with your words. The law is clear, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so there's a real question, how then can you be counted righteous before an infinitely holy God? But what the scriptures hold out is the promise of the gospel, first of all, for your justification. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for your justification. 
Jesus Christ knows who you are. He sees. He is the only one, the light of the world, who can clearly shine that light into the darkness of your hearts, who sees everything by which you fall short of the glory of God. And he came into the world because he loves you. He came into this world even though securing your forgiveness would not require mere performances of ceremonies. It would require for him to be condemned in your place for your sin. And so Jesus willingly for you paid that penalty where he suffered, where he was beaten, where he was spit upon and mocked, where he was nailed to a cross, where he bled and where our Savior gave up his life to die for you in your place. And our Savior, having been buried for three days where death held power over him, then rose on the third day for our justification. For all those who believe in him. That is, so that you may be counted righteous apart from the law. But to do this, you will have to give up direct control. It will no longer rest on whether you can do the right things at the right time in the right way. It will depend exclusively, entirely on whether you are resting upon a Savior who has done all things, heart, soul, and external actions perfectly, including taking your punishment for you. If you do not know Jesus, this is what you are missing. You are missing the only promise of forgiveness before a holy, righteous God. You are missing the only hope of a cleansing that goes not just to cleanse your outward hands, but deeply into your heart. Second thing that the gospel of Jesus promises is that you are called to trust in the Lord Jesus, not only for your justification, but for your sanctification to be made holy. It's overwhelming to think of the full weight of our sin, how far short we fall from the glory of God. It is discouraging and demoralizing then when we see our sin continue to raise its ugly head in our lives. But the promise of the kingdom is that the king has come to put to death your deepest sin, to purge and cleanse you from all filth, uncleanness, and the defilements of your heart. I want to take all of these thoughts, the promises of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I want to sort of boil them down. Maybe one thing to consider for your life. Don't turn your relationship with God as a whole, but particularly your repentance, into some kind of mechanical ceremony. Now, the Pharisees thought that they could stay clean by this mechanical ceremony of cleansing their hands before every meal that they ate. That was the tradition of the elders. It promised direct control over their main problem. No ceremony, no salvation. But we make the same mistake when we maybe spiritualize it a little bit more, but essentially depend upon the same principles. That we will be kept clean by mechanically entering into a ceremony of confessing each one of our sins. Now understand, confessing our sins is important. There's a reason we do it every week. and I don't want to detract from that. You should be doing it privately in your own lives during the week. I don't want to detract from that. But rather than thinking that you are saved by how well you have confessed your sins, understand that repentance calls us something entirely different. We talked about this a little bit more in my Sunday school class this morning, but the very first word of the Protestant Reformation, the first thesis of Martin Luther's 95 Theses was this, that when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, Matthew 4, verse 17. 
He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. But there's a reason this was a key insight that changed everything. Because it meant that there are no ceremonies that you can do, and by the performance of those, you will be saved. No ceremonies, no salvation is not the gospel that Jesus came to teach. Repeated, regular, ongoing ceremonies are not what save you. It is the regular, ongoing turning away from sin and back to Jesus. Now, it isn't a ceremony. I've done this, therefore it has to be dealt with this way, and if not, everything is off. Now, what repentance calls us to is, is not something where we are itemizing our sins as though we were submitting them as receipts for reimbursement. What we are called to is something far more spiritual. Say, Lord, I've seen sin pop up in my life, and I know the roots of that sin go, I don't know how deep. I'm dealing with something in my life that I cannot get my head around, that I can't see the bottom of it. I scarcely understand it. But it's to cry out to the Lord again, Lord, I am looking to you to put to death the deeds of the body, to put to death, to death the sin that is lurking in my soul. It means a crying out to God, not only to forgive us, one sin, one forgiveness, but rather to forgive us, to absolve us of our sins, to cleanse us from our sin, to heal us from our sin, to renew us according to the principle of life that Jesus has come to replant in our hearts. That's what the Heavenly Father plants. New life in Christ. Are you thinking of every part of your life as some kind of ceremony that if I just do the right thing in the right way, I will be saved? Or is your life characterized by repeated recognition, nope, I'm going the wrong direction again, and repeated turning back to the Lord, Lord, forgive me. Lord, cleanse me, make me new. Jesus has called us not to a salvation that we secure directly by our ceremony keeping. Jesus called us to a salvation that he himself abundantly, generously provides even to the worst of sinners, even to me, even to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we cry out to you knowing that we fall so far short of the glory of God. Heavenly Father, forgive us. Forgive us for sins that we see and for sins that we cannot see fully or the bottom of or completely. Root out in our life everything that does not belong to you, every last vestige of rebellion and darkness. And we pray that as we hand these things over to you, that you would put them to death, that you would nail them to the cross. The condemnation that Jesus took, he would have taken for what we have now done and what is happening and lurking even in our hearts. That we would forever know the salvation that he offers through faith in his name. I pray that if there's anyone this morning who has not found the joy, the security, the freedom of salvation in Christ, that you would, by your Spirit, lead them to trust in Christ today, right now. We pray that for those of us who do know Jesus, he would lead us in continual dependence upon our Savior, who is worthy. In his name we pray. Amen.